Wait, we're in a new series and um, it's on prayer. So there we go. Uh, but we're going to be in the book of Psalms over these next six weeks. And um, just tapping start on my timer. Uh, book of Psalms over the, uh, over the next six weeks. And so if you've got a Bible with you, I'd love you to turn, please, to Colossians chapter four. <laughs> it's the obvious place to start. Just before we get into this series, I just want to say three things real quick. We've got a slide that's hopefully going to come up. Firstly, compassion last week. As a church across all our venues, we sponsored, uh, we think around extra 50 children, which is amazing. Thank you so much for your generosity. We're now up to 145 to 50 children that we as a church sponsor. Thank you so much. Genuinely, if you'd like to sponsor, there's still an opportunity tonight. You can come and chat to one of the team. Second thing is, as we're in this new series, we're going to be praying together. So we're going to pray together at the week of prayer, 29, 30, 31. It's not a week, is it? It's three nights. But we're going to pray together then, 29, 30th and 31st, here in this room. You can come. We'd love to see you. 7.30 for refreshments, 8 o'clock start. And then um, we're as part of it, we're also encouraging everybody to pray and if you check out newcom.church forward slash pray, you will find a link to an app and a whole bunch of resource stuff that we're going to be praying through every day together as a church. We'd love you to, at some point, maybe even right now, real quick, uh, head to newcom.church forward slash pray and join with hundreds of other people across the life of the church in praying together over these next six or so weeks as we're in this psalm series. Okay, we're giving this series the title, Teach Us to Pray. And I want to start in Colossians 4 because I just feel that these are a couple of verses which are kind of underpinning really these next few weeks for us in terms of new community as a whole right across all of our venues. Really important verses. Continue steadfastly. Your version might say, devote yourselves in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. We have a big vision here, a new community. A few years ago, we felt God speak to us about raising the level of expectation of what he's going to do here in us and through us. And God gave us a big picture vision, which has resulted in the first steps of multiplication, which is going to happen again this year. That's our intention, that we'd multiply uh, again this year, that we'd be launching a new venue and establishing stuff that will launch some more in the coming years as well. And one of the things when we when felt God speak to us about becoming multi-site and growing and multiplying and planting churches was to raise the expectations, reaching the nations. That's what we're about, reaching the nations of the world. That's where we're heading, Revelation. That's the picture, a great multitude, no one can number from every tribe and every tongue and every everything. We're not there yet. One day we will be. Right now we're supposed to be a prophetic statement of what is to come. Reaching the nations, a key way is advancing through prayer fueled by worship. This stuff matters. We need to continue steadfastly. We need to devote ourselves to it. And we need to be watchful in it with thanksgiving. Often we can just reduce prayer to a list of, hey, Jesus, do this for me. We've got to be watchful with thanksgiving. Paul in, in Romans 1.21 says that un, a lack of thankfulness is the mark of unbelief. There's a mark of unbelief. Whoa. He says in Colossians 3.15.17, like what a mature believer looks like, what somebody who is growing in their faith looks like, they're growing in and marked by thankfulness. We've got a lot to be thankful for and we need to remind ourselves of it so we don't just come prayer with a list of stuff. God, do this, but thankfulness. At the same time, verse three, pray also for us, says Paul, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the, to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison. That's what we're praying over these next six weeks, actually. God, would you speak? 
Would you make it clear for us? Would you open a door? We've got these plans, where we're going to launch next and what we're going to do. We think it might look a little bit different from what we've done so far. We need God to speak. So encouraged today already. God has been speaking a number of prophetic things, a number of stuff that God's spoken to individuals and to us corporately. We're seeking his face that I may make it clear, says Paul, which is how I ought to speak. We're asking God to make it clear. Prayer really matters. Really crucial this year that we grow individually and corporately in our depth and experience of prayer. And this series is called Teach Us to Pray because we need help. Like honestly, like you want to make Christians feel guilty, what is the two things you speak about? Prayer and evangelism and maybe money. All right, three things. But definitely on prayer, like because none of us thinks we've got it nailed. Like none of us thinks, yeah, my prayer life is everything it ought to be. But God's will is that we would pray to him. Jesus tells his disciples in Mark 38, watch and pray. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing, like always, like breathing. You don't need reminding to breathe. Paul says prayer should be like that. Don't need reminding of it. It's just constant. It's part of our rhythm of our life all the time. Prayer is really central to the Christian life. We were created to pray. Every single one of us knows that. It's why we all do it. Over, I was reading a survey in the, the, uh, the Observer the other day, a couple of weeks ago, that um, over half of the adults in the UK admitted to praying on a fairly regular basis. 25% of non-believers pray, despite saying they're not religious and they don't believe anyone listens to them. Go figure. <laughs> we're created to pray, and we're all praying, but we need help. We need help. Every single one of us needs help in our prayer life to grow it. Because prayer at its most basic thing is just what? Talking to God. Actually, it's his most simplest thing. Prayer really is asking God for stuff. But here's the thing. Prayer is more than just saying whatever you like to God. I mean, you can say whatever you like, but it's more than just, just chatting and inanely babbling away to him. We need to be really clear that God loves it when we pray. And God actually loves it when we ask him for things. Proverbs 15, verse 8, the prayer of the upright is his delight. Let that sink in for a moment. The prayer of the upright is his delight. He loves it when we pray to him, when we ask him for him things. James 4, verse 2, you do not have because you do not ask. That's a stunning verse, right? You don't have because you don't ask. God loves it when we ask him for things, and he says you don't have because you don't ask. Check out 1 John 5.14. This is the confidence we have toward him that if we're asking anything according to his will, anything according to his will, he will hear us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we've asked of him. That's massive, right? God loves it when we ask him for stuff and he loves to give us stuff. Just to hammer it home, Jesus in, in Matthew 7, verse 7 says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is, who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? 
Just so you're tracking me here. God loves when we ask him stuff for stuff. And he loves it. And he responds to it. And he gives us it. If we're asking in accordance with his will. So the big key question then for us is, how do we know what is according to God's will? Right? Because if we pray according to God's will, then he answers. That's a stunning promise right there. Hence, Jesus, teach us to pray. Turn to Psalms. Psalm chapter 1. Psalms is a whacking great book in the middle of the Bible. It's really big. No book has as many chapters as Psalms. No book is, is quoted by as many New Testament writers directly and indirectly as uh, the Psalms are. The Psalms are a very important book because they teach us to pray. The, New, the Old Testament covenant people of God, the Psalms was their songbook and it was their prayer book. They would sing the Psalms, they would recite the Psalms, they would pray the Psalms individually and corporately. And in the New Testament, in the early church, they also continued to pray the Psalms, to sing the Psalms. Paul refers to it in Ephesians 5 and in Colossians 3 of the singing and the praying and the, and the speaking of the Psalms. These psalms are God's word to us to enable us to speak the words that he kind of gives us back to him. So Athanasius, who was a fourth century theologian, said the rest of the Bible speaks to us. The psalms, they speak for us. They're kind of the word of God to be spoken back to God. So we want to know kind of how can I pray in such a way that's acceptable to God, that's in line with his will, we pray his word and we pray it back to him because there's no kind of any sort of guessing or any point then whether that's okay or not because they're God's words for us, to us that we can, be, we can then speak back to him. God wants us to pray and he's given us the Psalms to pray but we need to understand how to pray them. Lots of people love the Psalms. If we just had a, a kind of quick survey around here, lots of us love the Psalms. But often we don't really know how to actually kind of handle the Psalms. And my experience of being in pastoral ministry for a number of years now is that people tend to kind of have a pick and mix approach to the Psalms. So they read happy ones when they're happy and they read sad ones when they're sad. And occasionally if, if something, if they don't know what to do with anger, someone says, hey, there's some angry ones too. Read those. And they're like, woohoo. And it's that kind of, we tend to just pick a mix. Like there's 150 of them. Must be one here that I like soon. Nope, 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 nope. Yes, that's me today. Well, hey, I'll pray it. That tends to be our approach to the Psalms. We also struggle with the Psalms because of the genre and style. So we read the rest of the Bible and we understand stories. So we get narrative because we have stories in our culture. We understand letters because, well, we don't write them anymore, except for maybe great-grandparents if they're still alive. But we, don't. but we understand the idea of a letter. We understand even what law is. Psalms don't fit into those categories. They're more like a collection, an anthology. They're a little bit like a, an old-style photograph album. You know, in the pre-digital days, you'd kind of print them out and put them out, and there was happy memories and, and actually sometimes some sad ones because... It depicts a different time or something was going through. Or sometimes they're not in order, but they're kind of like a, a collection of moments in our life. And the Psalms are a bit like that. They're like a photo album snapshot of different seasons, different uh, moments in the spiritual life. The literary style of Psalms also confuses us because they're poems. And with a few exceptions, 
In a room this size, there are probably a few people who love poetry, and when they go home, forget Netflix, poems. That's what we're doing. But for most of us, that's probably not our experience. Whilst we might not hate poetry, we were kind of glad to leave it behind at GCSE, all right? That was kind of the extent to which it was there. I don't hate poetry. It just doesn't form a huge amount of my life, except for when I'm writing limericks sometimes. (laughs) They don't really count, but still. Poetry is wonderful, but because we're not overly familiar with it, it can cause us some problems if we're not careful. So we read the Psalms, and I don't know if you've ever had these kind of experience, and, and uh, you're reading along, and you're reading, oh, this is me, this is me, oh, it's so wonderful, the Lord is this, and he's my shepherd, oh, this is wonderful. And then all of a sudden it starts thinking about crush the heads of the enemies, and you're like, oh, I'll skip that verse, and come to the next one. We see it in contributions all the time, like, the Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice, let the coastlands be glad, I'm so glad I'm reading Psalm 97. I didn't actually look to the next bit because it was on the next page, and if I heard the next verse goes, fire goes before him and burns up all his enemies. Not hugely appropriate in a, co- in a context of worship, so we skip, skip. Oh, yes, good, the Lord is good and he's merciful, and we kind of merge Psalms together and just miss out the difficult moments. Happens all the time. Or sometimes if we read with integrity, we can read through the Psalms and we kind of get to something like Psalm 18, verse 23. It says, I was blameless before him and I kept myself from guilt. I'm like, really? <laughs> I've kept myself from guilt for about four minutes. But about five minutes ago, I was thinking something I probably shouldn't have thought about that guy at the front. <laughs> we are not blameless. We are not keeping ourselves from guilt. We, we know we're not. And those of us who think we are, well, we'll, Psalm talks about lying as well. So we can deal with those things. But we need to understand the Psalms. Because when we do, we've suddenly got this huge resource opened up for us. These are God's authorized words from him for us to speak back to him. Now, we need to be clear. God's not a slot machine. Put in the right words and you get ding, 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 cash back. That's not how God operates. But praying in his will is about grasping hold of the heart of God and being shaped and molded and aligned with him. And learning to pray his word is a major way of doing that. So we're going to focus on Psalm 3, but in order to get there, we need to go through Psalms 1 and 2. I mean, that's not the way all the Psalms work. If we're focusing on 149, we wouldn't need to get through all 148 before we get there. But Psalm 1 and 2 are really like the introduction, the gateway, if you like, the front door to the Psalms. If you understand what Psalms 1 and 2 are talking about, suddenly Psalm 3 and then 4, all the way through to 150, kind of open up a whole new meaning for us. So let's have a look at Psalms 1 and 2. Now, these Psalms are linked together, all right? Now, they're linked together by a literary device called inclusio, which basically means the first word of Psalm 1, blessed, is the first word of the last line of Psalm 2, blessed. Now, it's a, it's a technique in poetry that links these two things together. Now, this is not just me showing off and going, oh, look at him. He knows his Hebrew poetry or he can read commentaries. It was, it's more a reality that these two things are linked together because of what they're saying informs the way we read the rest of the Psalms. So this is really important. Let's look at it. Blessed, Psalm 1 verse 1, blessed is the man. Blessed. It's a word in Hebrew, ashray. It means happy. Not like, because I'm happy. Not like that kind of happy, but a much deeper, joyful, the kind of, Jesus said in John 10, 10, I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. That's what this is talking about. Life to the full, blessed, happy. 
is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. So blessed is the person who delights in the law of the Lord. That word law means Torah. It literally translates as instruction. Okay, so happy is the person who delights in in the instruction of the Lord. So right there in the very first verse, we've got an introduction to us to tell us what the Psalms are. The Psalms are an instruction manual in happiness. They're an instruction manual in happiness. They're a guide into happiness, which is really good news, right? Because none of us, when we were little kids, was asked that question, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be a fireman. I want to be an astronaut. I want to be a spaceman. Same thing. I want to, what do you want to be? Miserable. Said no one ever. We all want to be happy. And the Psalms teach us how to be blessed, how to be happy, how to live a godly and therefore happy life. But here's the thing. You don't drift into a godly life. You don't drift closer to Jesus. You don't drift into holiness. You actually drift away from it. Look at verse one, walking, becomes standing, becomes sitting. You drift away from God. You don't drift towards. You drift towards the wicked, towards sinners, towards the scoffers. Are you intentionally moving towards God tonight? Or you're in danger of drifting away. Because we need to cultivate a delight of God and cultivate a relationship with God. It's not automatic. Verse 2 on his law, he meditates day and night. There's an intentionality. I'm not just letting it happen, it will happen somehow. No, no, no. There's an intentionality. Look at verse three. This is a picture of the Christian life. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. We need to give attention to our roots so that we'll bear fruit. If the only time you open your Bible is on a Sunday night or in your community, you're not going to grow. Anytime you pray is when the person in the front says amen or you're forced to in a community, you're not going to grow. There's a promise here that as we give attention to our roots, in all that we do, we prosper. But look at verse four, the wicked won't. The wicked are not so. They're like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. That's a promise there, right? The righteous are going to prosper. The wicked will perish. But the truth is, it doesn't sometimes feel like that, does it? Often feels like we've got that wrong way around. Like the, the wicked, they seem to be flourishing and I'm, I don't seem to be. Verse five is the key verse. Therefore, really very important. There's a shift here from the present tense to the future tense. The psalmist shifts from temporal things, what we see now what we experience now, to internal things, what only God sees. And so we're now confronted tonight. You and I are confronted with a choice. What we delight in now, we will inherit for all eternity. What we delight in now and give ourselves to in this life, we will inherit forever. And verse six is such good news for those who are in Christ and it's terrible news if you're not. The Lord knows the way of the righteous but the wicked will perish. Because of Jesus, we are blessed, we are happy, we are secure, we're known and we're loved. And we can have this confidence because Psalm 2 follows Psalm 1. Flick over to Psalm 2. This is what we might call a coronation psalm. 
like when there's a new king on the throne. Now, we're not told who this is for, but there's a new king of Israel. And it doesn't really matter who it's for because we need to understand when we're reading the Psalms that each of them have an immediate historical context. It's actually about an event. Something happened or about a person or about something going on, but they also all have this other thing or this other person or this other event that they're talking about or looking to. And so Psalm 2 is saying it's about this. There's a declaration, there's a coronation of a king. It's about this, but it's also about that. And Psalm 2 is a declaration that there is a king on the throne. And it's not an earthly king. Because we know that even the best of kings are at best their only men. This is a psalm about this, but it's also a psalm about that. And we know, of course, that what it's really about is Jesus. And part of the reason we know it's about Jesus is because we know the answer is always Jesus. And we know that every page of scripture, somehow, this is about Jesus. I don't get how, but it is. It must be. That's the answer. We're in church. I'm told every week, it's all about Jesus. And the, prime, the kind of Sunday school answer is, it's Jesus. And if you're ever in doubt, Jesus is a best, good bet. But this really is about Jesus. And we know that because Jesus himself says in Luke 24, verse 44, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And he says, it's all about me. And we know that this particular psalm, this coronation of a king, is all ultimately about Jesus because there's lots of references in the New Testament to it. So Peter, when he preaches in Acts 4, verses 25, 26, he says that Christ's cross, Jesus dying on the cross, was the epitome of the nation's rage. And he quotes what we're about to look at in a moment. Paul does exactly the same thing in Acts 13. He says Jesus has received his coronation and his resurrection, and he quotes back to Psalm 2 and says, look, this is where it is. And in Ephesians 1, Paul says that there is a king who's actively reigning and ruling above all other kings, who has all power, all authority, all dominion, who has no rival and has no equal. He's talking about Jesus from Psalm 2. Verse 1, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? That word plot is the same word as meditate in verse 1, in chapter 1, verse 2. It's a picture of people meditating on how to overthrow this king. There's a king on the throne, but they're trying to work out how they can rebel against his authority and work out how they can be the king themselves. The kings of the earth, verse 2, set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Here's what's going on. There's kings of the earth who hate the idea that there is a king above them, who hate the idea that there is one who rules and reigns with absolute authority and absolute supremacy, highly exalted above all. They hate the idea that there is someone in control above them. They hate the idea that there is somebody who directs them. They hate the idea that they have to bow the knee before someone else. We hate the idea too. We hate the idea that we're not our own. We hate the idea that we're not in control of our own destiny. We hate the idea that we don't control our own fate. No one tells me what to do. I decide what I do. I'm the captain of my ship. I'm the master of my soul. I'm in charge. I'm in control. Except we're really not. Like we're really not. And verse four, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. 
Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Wow. That's a sober warning right there, right? That's a sober warning and a stark reminder that there is a king above all earthly kings. That there is one who is higher than you, higher than me, higher than any earthly authority. And that we were built to know and submit to that king. And then the last couple of verses are just this incredibly sober warning. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed, same word as right at the beginning, happy though, are all who take refuge in him. Here's what's going on with this psalm. You can either serve and rejoice and kiss the king and find refuge in him and therefore be blessed and be happy, or you won't serve, you won't rejoice, you won't kiss the king, and you're going to perish. And because we view the world just through this kind of lens as if this is all it is, we can think, well, I'll be all right, thanks, I'm fine, good for you, mate, it's true for you, not for me. The reality is this world is not all there is, and one day we'll stand face to face with him when we leave this world, and in that moment we're going to perish unless we know him. There's no refuge from the king. There's only refuge in the king. And there's no in between. You take refuge in him, or you run like the wind and hope he doesn't catch you. And one day he will. You need the king. And the truth is, until you know and until you submit to that king, your heart is not going to be at rest and it's not going to function the way it is. So you can be a believer here tonight, but you're not fully submitted to the king. And your heart's not at rest. And it won't be until you surrender. You surrender to the king. Gonna have to swap. If you're listening online, that something very cool just happened. I <laughs> <laughs> submitted to the king. You're taking refuge in him. (laughs) Oh my word. I think something incredible is about to happen. You know, Psalm 1 and 2 tell us that we can be blessed, we can be happy, but only if we take refuge in God's Messiah. Because he's the king. And we have a choice. Every single one of us tonight has a choice. You can be a friend of God 
or you can be a friend of the world. And just to be clear, being a, there's being a friend of God or being an enemy of God. Can't be both. There is a king who reigns. And knowing this changes everything. Because everything is for him. Everything points to him. Everything is fulfilled in him. Everything is all about him. All of this and all of this and all of everything is about this king. It's about Jesus. And so now this is the lens through which we understand and read the rest of the Psalms and the rest of Scripture. And this is how we begin to make sense of the bits that we don't really get and the bits that we don't really recognize as our own experience because we begin to understand these are not about us and they never have been. They are supremely about Jesus and he ultimately is the one who prays them and sings them and we get to join in because of him. So Augustine, who a great theologian, describes the Psalms as being songs that the people of God sing. And he says, Jesus is the choir master and we're the choir. He's the one who leads the singing and we get to join in because of him. And the reason we get to join in because of him, and we're going to see how this works out in Psalm 3, is because Jesus is precisely the only perfect man who perfectly meditates day and night upon the law of the Lord. He's the, one who, he's the only one who perfectly knows what it is to delight himself in the law of the Lord. He's the only one who doesn't stand with sinners or scoff or slide that way. He's the only one who perfectly follows the instruction of the law of God. How many of us day and night meditate upon the word of God? None of us do. And if you think you do, no you don't. Only Jesus truly does. How many of us, Psalm 2, is the king who sits on the throne? None of us. How many great kings have we had in the world? We've had loads of earthly ones. How many of them still rule and reign? Absolutely none. But Jesus still rules and still reigns with supremacy because he's the king in David's line who will fulfill the promise to govern the world precisely because he's the man of Psalm 1 who perfectly delights in the law of God and meditates it on day and night. And so he is supremely what the Psalms are all about and he's the one who can supremely sing them. And we get to join in because of him. So in these last few moments, I just want to work this out in Psalm 3 and have a look how it works very practically for us. Because there's three ways of reading a psalm. All right? You can read them as if you think they're about you. Now, none of us know that. We all know they weren't written about us. But we kind of think they're our psalms. So they were written a few thousand years ago. But they're for me. They're primarily about me. So if we do that, we have a problem. Because we've got, everything's got to be about us. There's a second way of reading the Psalms, which is recognizing they're not about us. They're actually a Psalm in the main of David. So we read them as if they're David's, but then they come to us. Or there's a third way, which we're going to look at in a moment. They're a Psalm of David fulfilled in Jesus to be sung by the people of God, the church, of which, because of Jesus, I am one of them. So I can join in. So let's see how this works out in Psalm 3. Let's have a look. Oh Lord, verse 1, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Now, if this psalm is about me, immediately I've got a bit of a problem here because I'm not sure I have that many foes. Now, I have some. <laughs> I have some people who would be dead keen to get rid of me and would be more than happy. But I haven't got many foes. At least I don't think so. And certainly, if you look at verse 2, this isn't true of me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Now, people, lots of people have said lots of different things to me and some of them not so pleasant. I have never had anyone kind of mock me or taunt me and say, there's no salvation for you in God. That's not generally how we cuss each other these days. <laughs> and no one has ever said that to me. It's not my experience. 
Verse three, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. Now I begin to, well, I like that verse, that's good. He's my shield, he's my glory, and he's the guy who says, chin up. Except that's not what it means. Lifter of my head is an idiom referring to military victory. Now I've never been to war. Now you might have been in the military and you might have fought in some wars, but I don't imagine any of you have single-handedly won a military victory. So it's probably not true of you either, this verse, so I'm not sure what I do with that. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. Yeah, it could be about me. I lay down and slept, verse five. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. It might be me. I go to sleep most nights and so far so good. I've woken up every day. I, verse six, will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. I mean, I've been in a couple of fist fights, but not with thousands of people. Not for a long time either. I just don't have thousands of people. It's not my experience. Thousands of people attacking me. Verse 7. Arise, O Lord. Save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Okay, I've prayed that. Verse 8. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Well, it's a nice verse, but I'm not entirely sure what this means in relation to me and how your people are affected by what happens to me. So I've got a bit of a problem if I read this psalm about me. Let's have a look back through it about if it's about David and then comes to me. So verse one, David's under pressure. Well, I feel the same, so it must be a true me. Verse three, David believed that God had promised to help him. So I'm gonna believe like David too. Verse six, David trusted God, so I'm gonna try and do the same. Verse seven, David prays to God to help, so I'm gonna do the same. Now this is better, but we gotta understand that primarily the Bible is not there, the Old Testament particularly is not there to have these examples for us to emulate. So it's not primarily about this guy had faith, so you need to have faith. Or this guy behaved well, so you need to behave well. Or this guy made good decisions, so here's how you make good decisions. Or this guy was a really good solid guy, so you should be a really good solid guy too. They're not about heroes for us to emulate. They're supremely looking and pointing us towards who? Jesus. So now, beginning to understand, actually Psalm 1 and 2 tell me these psalms are about Jesus, sung by him. We're beginning to get somewhere about how they are psalms written of David fulfilled in Jesus so I can sing them let's have a look at how this works then well first of all look at the title a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son now we immediately that gives us some historical context and so we can now look back into 2 Samuel where it tells the story and in 2 Samuel 15 through 18 it tells the story of David and it's a desperate time for God's anointed king Many actually are against him. It says in 2 Samuel 15 that the hearts of the people are with Absalom. So actually, he is, has got many who are against him. This is a really desperate time. And they're saying, God won't deliver you. God won't rescue you. So don't bother praying. They're saying, you're guilty, David. We know it. God knows it. You know it. Don't bother praying. And David was guilty. He wasn't purer than pure. He wasn't holier than thou. He made all sorts of screw-ups and mess-ups of his life. And he was under huge pressure. And they're telling him, saying, God, I'm going to save you, bro, because look what you have done. You know who you are. I know who you are. He's not going to save you. Now, here's the thing. Understand this psalm is fulfilled in Jesus. We don't move straight from David's plight to our own. David is the anointed king, but we know that this psalm is fulfilled in Jesus. So now, instead of looking just at David, we're now looking to Jesus. And Jesus knew what it was to have foes. From his earliest of life, there was, there was, from his early life, there was plots against him to kill him. We know when he looked at the cross, when he went to the cross, Matthew 27, he was mocked. They said he saved others, but he can't save himself. God's not going to deliver him. There's no salvation for him. 
Wow. <laughs> Jump to verse 8 for a moment. Jump to verse 8 for a moment because this is where we come in. See, in the Old Testament, in those times, if a king won a victory, the people won a victory. And if the king lost in battle, then the people lost. It didn't matter how good your fighting was. If the king won, you won. If the king lost, you lost. And so if the king prays and he's granted a victory, because the king, God answers the king and he wins the victory, I have won the victory too. Now we know that this is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. What did Jesus do? He went and fought a great fight and had a great victory over the forces of sin, Satan and death. And God the Father answered him and pulled him back to life. He walked out of the tomb, having overcome, having been greatly victorious. And because of his victory, I now am victorious. I did absolutely nothing in the fight. He did it all, yet his win is my win. His victory is my victory. He's alive, so I'm alive. He is eternally ruling and reigning so I eternally shall live and be with him not because of anything I've done but because of everything that he has done and so because he has a victory I have a victory and so go back now back to uh, to verses one and two none of them are my direct experiences but they are the experiences of the true king and because my life is now hidden in him I am one of his people I should expect there to be an overflow of pressure coming my way so the king is under huge pressure I'm never Never going to be, but I will experience some pressure. The king goes through supreme darkness, so even though I might go through a little bit of darkness, I'm never going to go through supreme darkness because he has done it for me, therefore I don't need to go there. But I should not be surprised when I experience some darkness or some pressure because I am one of the king's people and it comes to him, so it's going to go to me too. And the same principles are applied throughout the rest of the psalm. Look at verses three and four. The king has this sure covenant promise that God will be a shield, his glory, and will be his victor. And when the king cries out, God always answers. And because all of these promises are going to Jesus, who is the true king, and because my life, if I've put my trust in Jesus tonight, my life is hidden within Christ Jesus, all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Jesus. And so therefore, they're all coming my way too. And so in verse 5 and verse 6, the king can rest in these covenant promises. I can lay down and sleep because Jesus has won the victory for me. I will not be afraid, even though many might come at me, even though lots of pressure might come my way, because Jesus has won the victory for me. He has taken on all the forces of sin, Satan and death, all of my eternal enemies, and he's defeated all of them. And so now verse 8, salvation belongs who? To the Lord and his blessing comes to who? His people. And who am I? One of his people. And so it's coming my way. That's how you pray these psalms. That's how it suddenly takes on a new life. I, do I feel a bit pressured? No, that's, who cares? Jesus has taken it for me and has come through for me. There's a king who reigns, brothers and sisters. Are you surrendered tonight? Are you submitted to him? I'll be all right. No, you won't. No, you won't. There's a king who reigns and he crushes his enemies and he causes misery for those who rebel against him. But for those who submit, those who take refuge in him, it's a very different story because our king reigns. We're blessed and we can, through Jesus, come before God himself, confident that he hears us. So these next few weeks, let's continue steadfastly let's devote ourselves in prayer let's be watchful with it in thanksgiving we've got every reason to thank god 
what he's done for us. We can pray through these Psalms, thanking God for this and that and this and that. Wow, and that, that's true. That's coming my way. That's true of me. This is true of me. This is true of me. Thank you, Jesus. And let us align ourselves with the King. Let us learn increasing. This is what we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks. Learning to ask in accordance with his will. And let's see what blessing is coming our way. What delights he has in store for us. What breakthroughs he will grant for us individually and corporately. Because the best is yet to come. Let us pray.